Welcome back, everyone. We hope you have been enjoying listening to our podcast here. Uh, just do us a favor. If this is in any way inspiring you, helping you, answering questions, provoking different thoughts, be a friend, tell a friend, um, share this with different people, word of mouth, whatever that may be. If you don't like it, if you're not enjoying yourself, then uh, let's just pretend this never happened. Or you can actually email us there in the show notes. But uh, yeah, welcome back. Hopefully what we're talking about today will be of great interest and of great help and will bring you closer to answers to the questions that you're looking for. With that being said, I'm Shane. I am here next to Christopher Reed. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the historical accuracy of the Bible. Hmm. And uh, if you remember a couple of podcasts ago, I challenged our listeners that you can't just dismiss out of hand that a book could not have had a supernatural origin. Right. Um, I, I did at one point in time, and I was challenged that, well, you need to have some kind of criteria uh, that you would demand of a book to prove that it was or was not supernatural in origin. You can't just say it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a number of different things, criteria we talked about then that I uh, was my list. I'm sure people could have other ones, but um, one of those would that be that it had to be actually accurate with known history. You can't have a book that is written by God and contradicts what we know about history, right? Yeah. Uh, as well as it must contain information that the, the author couldn't have known at the time of the writing, um, it's got to agree with proven science, has to be internally consistent. Um, it must give, uh, you know, some claim that it has a supernatural origin. Those are a few of the things that I was looking for. But this historical accuracy is a big deal. So yeah. uh, one of the best ways to test that is to test it with, like, archaeology um, and what we've discovered there. So um, what I wanted to look at in particular, which was of interest to me, is... Things that were written down first in the Bible, that we first encountered in the Bible, but there wasn't any evidence outside of the Bible for these events or these people. And so the Bible drew a lot of criticism, like, oh, that's a fictional uh, war that happened, or that person didn't really exist, or that place didn't exist, or something mm-hmm. like that. But then later on, the, the archaeological discovery was made and proved the Bible. But it was first Bible criticized because it was first encountered in the Bible and not found documented in archaeology. That, to me, is kind of interesting stuff. Do you know any anything like that that I'm talking about that was only found out later in archaeology but was written down first in the Bible? Sure. The first there, – there's I know for a fact that the existence of the Hittite people in the Old Testament was a big one because I've read about that before. That there was a lot about them, or fair amount about them in the Bible, and not at all any archaeological evidence for a long time. Um, and the I think the Joshua conquest, so the wars and the battles that were fought in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, I think were highly con- contested for a long time. I think as well, probably the older you, the older the Bible text is, the more criticism there has been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, um, all of these things that are, um, there's different types of criticism against them. Um, and maybe, I'm 
I'm trying to think of something maybe in the New Testament, but I'm I'm not really sure because there is that was more recent. We have so much written um, from that time period, mm-hmm. um, right? So yeah, those those first few things. Yeah, that's good. That's actually really good. And it's the Hittites was one that I was definitely going to bring up. Um, for those of you who'd like to go back and check it yourself, you'd run into the Hittites in the Bible in Genesis chapters 11 through 38, or where they're most uh, dominant there. And uh, they were described then uh, as a dominant political, cultural, and economic influence in Palestine at the time of basically the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking 2000 to 1800 BC. Um, and right up until around 1900, our time, right? Um, hundred and whatever it is, 20 years ago. Up until then, many scholars doubted their existence, just like you said, that the Hittites had never existed because they found no evidence. But then this German archaeologist, a guy named Hugh Winkler, he began excavating the, a city called Hattusha, which is present-day Turkey. Hmm. And in that excavation, he found five temples, uh, 10,000 clay tablets of historical writing that was basically a Hittite library in a Hittite language. And then he discovered a great number of other Hittite cities. There, it was a, a vast Hittite empire. Now you can actually get a doctorate degree from... Uh, among other places, University of Chicago and Hittite studies. So, but th- that was exactly right. They criticized the Bible, said this was a made-up, fictional kind of straw man that the Israelites could dominate later on mm-hmm. and seem to be, you know, tough. Uh, but they actually did exist. Mm. Um, well, at the very, very beginning, the very first couple verses of the Bible, you run into something that was not proven um, in science until very recently. This isn't archaeology, but the the idea of let there be light and boom, the the creation of whole universe from a big bang. We've talked about that earlier, that the Bible was criticized for having a view that the universe even started, had a start point, right? Hmm. Um, That people thought up until about 50 years ago that the universe was eternal and didn't have a start point. So right from the very beginning, there was stuff that the Bible had it right first. You mentioned Noah and the worldwide flood. That's uh, Genesis chapters 6 through 9. It seems like one of those most incredible stories, and this is one of the ones I aimed my arrows at early on (laughs) when I was trying to prove the Bible not true. One, one, I thought it's a ridiculous story, and two, what a horrible story about that the whole world would go under and be destroyed. But here's the curious thing about this. We've discovered similar flood stories all around the world, okay, Hmm. containing most of the central details that you found find in the biblical account, okay? So these flood stories, they're found in the, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, which are all still kind of close to that general area where that occurred. So you'd expect that to be in their culture. But then it gets really strange when you find things like um, the Hindus um, talk about Manu and seven others were saved in a ship for a worldwide flood. The Chinese have a character called Fahi, uh, in that tradition, he survives the flood with his wife, three sons, and three daughters. Noah is called Nu'u among the Hawaiians, all the way in Hawaii. Tezpi is his name among the, Na- the Mexican Native Americans. You have Manabozo among the Algonquin Native Americans. Noah's story is told in the Kurnai tribe of the Aborigines all the way in Australia. Fiji Islanders, natives of Polynesia, Micronesia, New Guinea, New Zealand, New Hebrides, the Celts of the Wales, uh, tribesmen of Lake County in the Sudan, 
Hottentots, and even the Greenlanders have the story of Noah. And in all of these stories, they have this, the common elements of that all mankind was destroyed by a great flood, represented as worldwide, and it was a result of God or the gods being displeased specifically at human sin. Hmm. And that a single man with his family or a very few friends survived the catastrophe by means of a ship or a raft or a large canoe. So, I mean, it's one of the things, if you have a, a, a kind of a, a, an account repeated all over the place in all different cultures and places, you have to kind of take seriously that this was probably based upon some historic fact of so many different cultures and places repeat it and don't have this typical tradition. It's just one of those stories that survived in all these different cultures. You have to say the biblical account is probably true, act, probably actually occurred. Some people, they, they like to say the Bible borrows stuff from other cultures, right? Um, and I was reading other epics like this at the time. There is the... Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? It, exactly, exactly. Epic of Gilgamesh from Babylon, um, it's similar. It, you know, It's an arc story. The problem is, is that their dimensions for the arc are a cube, hmm. which wouldn't float. The Bible dimensions for the ark are exactly the best dimensions for any ocean-going vessel, even to this day. Wow. And in the Gilgamesh epic, it only rains for 14 days, which wouldn't cover the, the amount of land we're talking about. In the, in the Bible account, it's torrential rains for 40 days, which would be enough for that. So usually when you're doing um, shell, or that's, that's Swedish, when you're doing source, source criticism, source criticism the text that's corrupted with wrong facts is generally the later text and not the original. Hmm. The original would be the one that would have true facts in it. Corruptions come on the, that original. Okay. Now, this is a question maybe getting us in a little bit into the weeds, because I've heard of different theories. Like there's the dome theory, which is when the Bible describes the whole world, it was the whole known world to them i.e. they hadn't, you know, they, there was no exploration to the different regions of the world. So that's why it is described that way. And it wasn't actually literally the whole world as we think of it today. And then that that, that story could have possibly then spread to other people. Oh. But I, I, take it, I take it you're not in that well, um, well, that's, camp? Well, that's a really good point. Um, I do believe this, that when the Bible talks about um, the world, it could be uh, a hyperbolic term. Um, and when it comes to the flood story, that's a really good question. First off, um, we know that mankind had its origin in kind of the northern Africa sort of area, the Fertile Crescent type area. Um, and man man did not occur all around the world, different places at the same time, but at one central place and fanned out. Hmm. So it is actually historically true that man spread around the earth and started at a more central place. I believe that this, when it says the you know the world was involved in this whole flood, that it's every place where man was hmm. was covered uh, with water. That's my that's my take now, which might not necessarily at all be the entire world at that point in time. It could have been a much smaller part of the world would have covered where people were at that time. Does that answer your question? Or yeah, yeah, I was just curious. I mean, either way, I don't think it changes the point theologically or. I'm, I believe in, in 
some form or another, it happened, you know, yeah. geographically. If it was literally the whole world or that whole region of the world, for me, that doesn't make much of a difference. But it's just, you know, I've heard the debate before. So Yeah, and I think even theologically, the point of the flood was mankind was violent um, and perverse and uh, disregarding of the values of family and life and everything else. And so God wanted to wipe out mankind. It wasn't important for God to necessarily wipe out the entire planet, but wipe out mankind and be- begin over again. So he could have done that wherever mankind was at that point in time. So, um, What do you know about the Tower of Babel? What, what's that story about, that, that account? The Tower of Babel was when mankind was starting to build, starting to really develop in a way that was... Um, guess in a way that the Bible would describe as a bit arrogant, um, and God comes in and confuses their language, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that they couldn't communicate to each other in the same in the same way, uh, which slowed their uh, um, their development, I guess. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's a pretty good summary right there. That's Genesis eleven. You could read about that. Um, it, it basically, mankind at that point in time all spoke the same language, right? And they gathered, just like you said, to build this huge high tower, which they think was probably a temple of some kind. And the goal was one that reaches to the heavens. So when God came down and saw their incredible building project that was a result of their incredible unity, uh, which they had because of common language, among other things, he decided to confuse their language so that they wouldn't understand each other. And then God, God scattered the people, uh, ending the building project, and introduced a whole lot of different languages into the world. Sounds like a big myth, okay? Mm. One of those other ones I aimed my arrows at. Um, there's actually considerable linguistic evidence now that the world did indeed have a common language at one point in time, okay? Mm-hmm. So this is alluded to several times in ancient Sumerian literature. And then in the 1920s, in what would be uh, northeastern Iraq today, a stele, which is a like a stone monument, like a big, it sometimes can be in the shape of a pillar, it can be like in a flat plate, but it's a stone monument, five by ten feet, uh, was discovered. And the stele commemorates the reign of Ur-Namu, who was the king of Ur, from uh, about two, 2044 BC, reigning for about uh, 35 years or so. He supposedly received orders to build a great thing called a ziggurat, which is those like a pyramid temple that has the flat top, hmm. sometimes for sacrifices, a lot of times for sacrifices, but it was like a huge uh, pyramid with a flat top. That's a ziggurat. And it was supposed to be an act of worship to the moon god Nanat. This tower angered the gods, so they threw down what the men had built. We don't know if this was an earthquake or whatever, but somehow this entire temple got destroyed from what the people saw as supernatural forces of the gods hmm. and scattered the men. And then the, one of the last phrases on the stele is, and made their speech strange. <laughs> wow. I've never heard that one. That's pretty amazing. It's it's pretty amazing. And so that would be right around the time period we're talking about. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah well, I've, well, I've heard that there's linguistic evidence of of at some point that there was a... Uh, a, a common language, and then things, for whatever reason, seem to change very rapidly. But I've never heard that one. That's pretty cool. Well, isn't it interesting also that 
the, at least in English and in a number of other languages, we still have the word babble for language not making sense. There's a Tower of Babel. We'll just leave mm, that one. Yeah, I would have to look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Inter- yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll just kind of leave it right there. Who knows which came first? Maybe the, Amer- the American English or English English back in the day, they imitated from the Bible. Who knows? Mm. I don't know. I just threw that out there. What do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah was the account in the Old Testament where there was a civilization that had, which was, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which was essentially all about um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and also oppressing people, oppressing the poor, uh, just nothing good was happening. Um, And so God steps in and wipes the place out through, uh, what is it, burning sulfur, falling um, sulfur that fell from the sky. Yeah. Was it sulfur? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you read about this in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, the two twin cities, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt from an article that came out of Forbes magazine. Um, This was a Forbes magazine article in 2018, written by Eric Mack. New science suggests biblical city of Sodom was smote by an exploding meteor. So this is out of Forbes magazine, very well-reputable source here, um, and you can read that yourself. And the article, New Science Suggests Biblical City of Sodom Was Smote by an Exploding Meteor. And this is an excerpt from that article. New research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere may have wiped out a Bronze Age civilization along with the north side of the Dead Sea some 3,700 years ago. While the findings come from the excavation of Tel Alhaman archaeological site in Jordan, many believe that the same place was once known as Sodom. Yes, as in Sodom and Gomorrah from the Bible, Torah and the Quran, the cities of sin supposedly destroyed with brimstone and fire sent from God. The archaeologist Philip J. Sylvia of Trinity Southwest University in Albuquerque has been working with a team that's been excavating the site for over 13 years and presented the report at the annual meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research last month. Samples from the site show that an extremely hot explosive event leveled an area of almost 200 square miles, including the Middle Gore, a circular plain to the north of the Dead Sea. Not only wiping out 100% of the Middle Bronze Age cities and towns, but also stripping archaeological soils from once fertile fields. So they can tell that it used to be really good farmland, and it's been basically bombed into oblivion, so it's been useless ever since. The researchers theorize that the intense shock waves from the blast may have also covered the area with a superheated brine of Dead Sea anhydride salts. But even if it turns out that Tel al-Haman in Sodom, uh, if it was Sodom, and it was destroyed by a cosmic airburst, he ends his article with this. The biggest question remains, did someone, perhaps a deity, order an asteroid hit on Sodom? (laughs) That's Forbes magazine, 2018. Yeah. Okay? Pretty incredible stuff. Notice we haven't even got out of Genesis. This is Mm. just Genesis stuff, right? A couple New Testament things we can hit, though. Um... Who is it that ordered the execution of uh, Jesus? It was Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate. Right. Okay. The gov- the Roman governor at the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because the Jews didn't have the authority to execute anybody. They had to let they were occupied by the Romans. They had to give their approval. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was the Roman governor at the time, ruling in Palestine. People thought that he was a, a fictional character, that he never existed. Um until nineteen sixty one. That's when they discovered the Pilate inscription, um, right in downtown Jerusalem. Um and confirming that he did exist and he was the guy who did order the execution of Jesus. But that was one of those things up until 1961. People thought he was made up. Hmm. Um, do you know who his Jewish counterpart was who ordered the hit on Jesus? Oh, was it, wasn't Caiaphas the high priest at the time? Exactly. Yeah. Right on. So the high priest Caiaphas, they, they weren't sure that he existed. Hmm. They actually thought the whole crucifixion thing may have been made up. But um, he was the Jewish high priest who prepared the plot to have Jesus arrested and executed. The actual remains of Pilate were discovered in Jerusalem in 1990, very Mm. recent. Um, They were digging to build a water park, and they came upon 12 um, really ornate ossuaries. And an ossuary is a bone box. The Jewish tradition was you were wrapped in special linens and spices and herbs, kind of like a mummified thing for a year. Then you were dug up, and by that point, you were only bones. And they would put your bones in a very neat, very ornate box and put you back into the family grave. That was the tradition back then. So they found 12 of these bone boxes, and one of them clearly had the inscription, Caiaphas, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, which was the very same high priest that condemned Jesus to death. They actually found his grave. Um, What else would I talk about here? Oh, they actually thought that Jesus being nailed to the cross, that that was probably an addition to heighten the intensity of the execution of Jesus because they had no evidence that they ever nailed uh, uh, victims to the cross but tied them with ropes. Hmm. Uh, This was not proven until 1969. They found uh, the remains of a victim of crucifixion, a man that was uh, between 24 and 28 years old. He had a seven-inch spike nailed through both heels um, and fragments of wood he'd been nailed to a cross and executed. Um, a little excerpt, um, Luke is probably the best historian in the New Testament, the way he writes. And he wrote things that I noticed before I was a Christian, and I thought, this is kind of a foolish way to write um, a fictional account. Mm-hmm. For example, in the beginning of Luke chapter 2, he's, he talks about, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. If you've ever sat in a traditional uh, Christian Christmas uh, uh, Christmas Eve service, they usually begin with this reading because it talks about Mary and Joseph making the long trip while she's pregnant to this town of Bethlehem to register, etc. It's a classic Christmas reading, okay? Well, that's not the way to write an account that's not historically true, because you got a lot of historical markers there you can check out. Yeah. Um, Bible critics and historians called all of these statements false until recently, when they've been able to verify that Caesar Augustus did exist at that time, he did issue a decree, and Quirinius was actually governor of Syria at that time. They've since found documents and inscriptions for all of this stuff, proving it all, um, the Bible had it first, one mm. more time. Um, 
Yeah, we could talk about a lot of other specific things. Uh, if I just made a general summary at this point, uh, there's stuff all through Kings that get that are confirmed by like the Moabite stone confirming the Moabites re re revolt against the King Jeroboam. Uh, you've got other stones that have been shown to, to confirm other kings and other wars and things like you mentioned about yeah. Joshua's invasions. But I, I will just say this, is that of all the digging over the several thousand years now, there's not been one archaeological discovery that's contradicted the Bible yet, not one. On the other hand, there have been hundreds and hundreds of discoveries that confirmed things that had been criticized in the Bible. Hmm. Um, and it'd be like, aha, it was true that King Hezekiah built a 550 meter long aqueduct through solid rock underground. Um, like it says in Second Kings 2020, they thought it wasn't true. And they discovered it in 1880, this aqueduct still channeling water from a, a source. You can, you can still go there today, right? Yeah, I've, I've walked through it. I've actually, with a little like coal miners um, hat on my head and walked through with a, a group of people, which... I wouldn't repeat it. It was very creepy. <laughs> now, it's 550 meters in pitch darkness in a rock, uh, you know, channel with water freezing cold gushing around your knees and up to your thighs is pretty intense. But, yeah. So, um, anyway, that that's kind of what I wanted to say just as a general summary. And there are plenty of books or things online you can check out about archaeology and the Bible. Um, I have a book in here in my library from the British Museum in London. It's simply called The Bible in the British Museum, Interpreting the Evidence. And that's just the archaeological evidence for the Bible housed in their museum. They don't even mention all the other artifacts around the world, especially in modern Israel and the Middle East. Uh, the Old Testament is, in fact, considered to be the most accurate account of history for the Middle East during the Bronze and Iron Age of any document. Well, in... In the British Museum, if I recall correctly, that's where the Cyrus Cylinder is located, mm. right? Okay. I think I think that's that's a good one. I don't know how criticized that one was, but I think that one says a lot. If you yeah. can talk a bit about that, yeah, that great. I I had that written down, but I thought okay, but that's good. You bring it up, Nehemiah chapter two. Basically, what what God had prophesied was that uh, a man by the name of Cyrus would come to power and would free the Jews from their Babylonian captivity, and that they would be allowed to repatriate Israel, and particularly rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and all that. And that was prophesied by Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, mm, I think it's 40-something? 40 40, yeah, yeah, 40, 45, I don't have it right in front of me, but in, in the 40s, and prophesied him by name, and like 160 years later, the guy exists. And when he comes to power, he does in fact that. He allows the Jews to go back. He even gives them supplies, uh, gives them, you know, things to rebuild with, money and support, troops, all this, and lets them go back and rebuild. And that they found this on something that looked like a cylinder, uh, looks like um, something made of, of clay and it has a writing all around it. And it has this edict of Cyrus allowing um, the, the people that were uh, in captivity in Babylon to go back, not just the Jews, but even a couple of other groups to repopulate their lands, but specifically the Jews as well, to go and rebuild both their, their country and uh, Jerusalem and the temple. Yeah. Um, now, here's a question that I've fielded and maybe thought myself. 
what are the odds that this king Cyrus would in fact have read an obscure text like to him an obscure text the text of the Jewish people uh, of Isaiah and actually seen himself in there written uh, you know a hundred plus years beforehand and decided oh okay I'll 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 fulfill this and I'll you know make myself even more famous. Because because there there is that you know for someone who is hypercritical they might have that question, which to to which I would think conquering a bunch of different people you wouldn't really necessarily give their their traditions their religion much uh, much of a thought. Um, so you know, and he himself considers himself a, a god king, um, which is what you know um, they thought um, hmm. the Persians at the time. Well, I, yeah. I don't. I, I'm I'm trying to think. Put myself in that situation. They were okay. The Jews were removed from their home a country all the way to Babylon, and in most cases, they were given new names to reflect the Babylonian culture. Hmm. They were given um, a new language. Um, they often named them with the names of Babylonian gods to try and stamp out any. A loyalty to any religion. True. So the Jewish documents at that time, they were probably extremely rare. I'm sure they weren't widespread because the Babylonians were trying to get the Jews to have a completely different identity uh, and religion and language and loyalty. So he may have, could have gotten a hold of some of those, uh, you know, a scroll of Isaiah. Uh, but then you'd have to ask yourself, would he have known how to read Hebrew? Mm, which that, that that's a pretty tricky language. It's not anywhere close to what he would have been speaking it for language. They weren't interchangeable languages, um, you know. Mm, good point. So I, that that would be my answer. I think it'd be he would have had to have go, literally gone to Hebrew school if you want, <laughs> been at the feet of some rabbi um, and been taught how to read and write Hebrew to even get that information. And I'm sure. Uh, uh, the Jews would not be that happy to just read to this oppressive king their yeah. sacred text. I mean, it could have happened. I just would consider it unlikely. Yeah. Okay. I just think figured I'd throw a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. There would be a lot of things that would stand in the way of that king even even caring at all. You, yeah. You know. So how does the Bible compare to? I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but how does it compare to the other religious texts that make the same claim that they're inspired by a higher power, which is the the Quran, um, the, the, the parts of the 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 Hindu Vedas. text, yeah, and is it the book, book the of Mormon? Mormon? Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well. Not not wanting to, to bash some of these other sacred texts, um, I'm not sure why they're considered sacred. I'll just be blunt. Um, but like the Book of Mormon, for example, it describes the Nephite people who inhabited ancient North America and who wrote in a language called Reformed Egyptian. Hmm. Okay? To this point in time, we've found no evidence of any kind of any language ever being called Reformed Egyptian, ever. And... Despite all the digging around North America for a very long time, we found no trace of any Nephite people ever existing. Hmm. Now, mind you, I just said that that happened to the Bible all the time, and then much later on they found these things. But in all of our time, and with a lot more digging going on, we found no evidence for that. 
Um, there really isn't any archaeological evidence behind the Quran either. Um, it's not really written that way. It doesn't have that many historical markings like that little passage I read from Luke. You don't you don't run into things that name governors and this and that. It's just not there. Okay. It's a different kind of text. Like when you come in, in contact with the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon is written similarly to the Bible in that it purports to be an historic text. Okay. okay? Um, when you have the Hindu Vedas, they're much more written in like a mythological t- type of way, like a storytelling kind of way. Um, the Quran is written a lot more with like edicts and principles and law hmm. rather than uh, a, a story narrative that had really events hanging in history. Um does that answer your question? Does that be yeah. Oh. yeah. No, I think it's an interesting idea that in the midst of there being a ton of teaching principle and really answering the question of why we're here, which is in the Bible, that there is also a lot of historical markers that can go back and be checked. Mm-hmm. And even the way you you touched on it, and this is something that I've thought and had conversations about, even in the way that the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus are written. There's there's many historical markers, names, places, times that written only a few decades after the life of Jesus yeah. would have been, um, you would have been able to check on those things. There, there were literally doors that you could knock on um, and ask people, were you here? Did this actually happen the way that it's written? Sure. But you, right. you brought up the point that if, if you were going to falsify a text, which, you know, many people have done throughout history, that is not the way that you would want to write it. Right. Um, rather the opposite. Exactly. Um, so it is, it's pretty, pretty compelling, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that that's the other thing that we have found um, so many documents uh, about with the accuracy of the New Testament. We'll, we'll talk more about that probably in a subsequent po- podcast, but... We know for sure we have the original text of the New Testament, 99.5%. It's only like wow. a half a percent of some questions, and that's mostly grammar. It's not even any content stuff. And everything was written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses to all these events. So it'd be kind of like, even if somebody today tried to write fake stuff about, oh, pick pick a person, like um, Ronald Reagan in the United States or Olaf Palmer here in Sweden, um, um, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, okay, you, these people existed so recently that if you try to come up with false articles about them or attribute miracles to them or other things like that, there'd be so many people to rise up and protest against false news about these people. Hmm. Um, there were people like that all around when all the New Testament was written, who could have written contradictory things or uh, objected and all that, and and they didn't. Hmm. Um, so... Yeah, well, that's what anything, I wanted to share. Yeah. Anything else? Not that. I think that's that's a, that's a good start. We'll get into some. We can get into some more stuff. Uh, maybe even more New Testament stuff in in the future. Great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in once again. Be a friend. Tell a friend if you're enjoying this. Um, and of course, we welcome any sort of feedback uh, through that email in the show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. <laughs>